was sort of a, a real baptism by fire. It was from the page in, in March Book One in which a teenage John Lewis meets Dr. King for the first time. And it really wasn't until the moment I was penciling Dr. King for the first time that I realized exactly what the stakes were at the drawing table. Uh, it sort of forced me to reckon with the fact that this is one of the most recognizable human beings on earth. Dr. King's face is so iconic. So few lines are required to make his likeness, but even one stray line can shatter that likeness. That's cartoonist Nate Powell talking about his work on the trilogy March, written by Congressman John Lewis and Andrew Iden. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. In 2016, Nate Powell became the first, and so far the only cartoonist to win the National Book Award. He shared the prize with Congressman John Lewis and Andrew Iden for the trilogy March. March is a graphic book, a memoir and history of the civil rights movement told through the eyes of John Lewis, who was at the center of many pivotal events as a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. When he came into the project, Nate Powell was an award-winning cartoonist. And although he had inked a book that dealt with racism called Silence of Our Friends, his work tended toward the more weird and fantastical. So his teaming up with Representative Lewis and Andrew Iden to draw March was not necessarily a no-brainer, even to Nate. I remember I was just kind of on a lunch break one day. I was drawing two books simultaneously, and I checked my publisher's website, and I saw this press release about this new project, March. Uh, so I, I read about it. I was like, oh, cool. John Lewis, the story of the civil rights movement. That sounds like an awesome book. Well, back to work. And at the time, there was no artist assigned, but in looking through the press release, it never occurred to me that perhaps they needed an artist. A couple weeks later, my publisher gave me a call. I've been working with my publisher, Top Shelf, for about 15 years, and we were even pen pals before that. Uh, so we have a very close kind of family <laughs> relationship. And he personally suggested that I try out for the role of artist for a number of reasons. Some of them were stylistic and aesthetic. I am a Southerner from Arkansas, but I also grew up in Alabama and have enough first-person experience with the topography, the culture, as well as a, a familiarity with the history and with the physical sites of that history that it was going to make the project a lot easier and perhaps you know, more emotionally riveting in terms of, of having enough of a physical connection to the location and the context of the story. So I got in touch with Andrew and the congressman, and I did a few tryout pages based on pages of their script, but within a couple of weeks, we just clicked really well together and decided to move ahead. Why did John Lewis decide to write a graphic novel about the movement and his part in it? He's already written the extremely powerful Walking with the Wind. Without a doubt. Well, this is one of these kind of unicorn projects, a perfect storm. Uh, its genesis goes back to about two years before I came on board. Andrew has always been a comic book nerd. Basically, some folks in the office were gently ribbing him for heading, to a, heading off to a comic book convention. Congressman Lewis kind of jumped in. It was like, oh, don't make fun of him. There was a comic book during the movement when I was a teenager, and it was very influential. 
And he starts telling this story about this 1957 comic, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery story, which is a 16-page account of the Montgomery bus boycotts that was published by the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And Dr. King and Jim Lawson specifically used it as a part of their nonviolence workshops and trainings. And it was sold or given away you know, out of the trunks of cars in activist training sessions, schools, churches, etc. Uh, it wound up being massively influential, translated into other languages, even used by Cesar Chavez in his labor movement in California. The book had sort of fallen into obscurity at the time. Anyway, all this blew Andrew's mind. And so he looked it up online that night, came back, and for every question that his office had had about how do we revitalize and reintroduce the history of the movement? How do we increase civic engagement, voter turnout? Andrew kept coming back with a solution. Congressman, you need to make a comic about all of this. And it took a few months to, to work it out and kind of wear down Congressman Lewis. And he's like, all right, I'll do it, but only if you do it with me. So they spent a few years working up a script together. Then I came on board well, how did you work together with Congressman Lewis and Andrew Iden? Did you get panels and captions? How was this broken down? Yes. Well, in the medium of comics, what's really refreshing is that 80% of the work is invisible. And really, all people get to see is the finished printed product. So because of this, there's sort of been an easing of some of the, the constraints of writing a comic script. So Andrew did write a really tight page-by-page, panel-by-panel script based on the working up of the story and the interviews that the two of them had done together, as well as Congressman Lewis's decades as a very masterful oral storyteller. I, however, have my, have my own sort of storytelling sensibilities. So I went in there with the approach that, you know, I, I'm going to move some things around to, to develop a pace and a flow that I'm comfortable with, and then we're going to work up the final look of this book together. So originally the script for the entire trilogy was just as a single 270-page book. And within a couple of days of reading the script, I was like, you guys, this is great. I'm really excited, but it's going to be about twice as long. I hope that's okay with you. I think it needs some breathing room to sort of pull out some of these subjective personal experiences and emotional, emotional moments. And at the time, this is back in 2011, 2012, we really didn't have a full sense, or at least I didn't have a very clear sense of the potential scope or scale of the project. So a lot of it was just sort of, let's take the pressure off. Let's all work at our pace. Let, let's see the way collaboratively we're going to have this, this book turn out. And so basically I broke down the entire book and I worked through some rough pencils and sent them back to Andrew and Congressman Lewis, got some notes. And then we would sort of work through the pages at first week by week. And then uh, over the course of the project, we were in contact literally around the clock. This project had you drawing people who actually had lived, some of whom are still alive. And I could imagine that being challenging. And I'm curious how you approach that. Certainly. It's a very good question or observation. Uh, and I'd say... Over the course of the four and a half years of doing March, that became more and more of a primary daily consideration. That was probably the most daunting challenge from the get-go, dealing with the likeness and the legacies of hundreds of recognizable real human beings, uh, some of them globally recognizable. 
one of my two tryout pages actually was sort of a a real baptism by fire. It was uh, from the page in, in March Book One in which a teenage John Lewis meets Dr. King for the first time. And it really wasn't until the moment I was penciling Dr. King for the first time that I realized exactly what the stakes were at the drawing table. Uh, it sort of forced me to reckon with the fact that this is one of the most recognizable human beings on earth. But strictly from, a, from an artistic perspective, Dr. King's face is so iconic. I guess I mean, I mean that almost in a, in a literal sense uh, in terms of line work. So few lines are required to make his likeness, but even one stray line can shatter that likeness. So there's a lot of pressure at the tryout stage, but I'm really glad that I, it was up to that level early on. But yes, there was a much higher degree of accountability. I guess the, the, the best example is on the cover of March Book 3 itself, which is the initial section of uh, the 600 protesters on Bloody Sunday. And looking at the documentation of the march. And that's at the Pettus Bridge. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Asking Congressman Lewis about the identities of each of the people towards the head of the march, it was important to, for me to recognize that, you know, the first 40 or 50 people had to be distinct individuals all the way down to their socks, their scarves, their bags, their shoes. Building on that, you also had to depict violent, heinous incidents. And again, this isn't a superhero thing. I mean, this is based on events that actually happened. And I wonder what went into your thinking about how to depict those. That was a really important kind of reckoning within myself. And I'm glad that you brought up violence in these not being a tale of superheroes in conflict with supervillains, because the, the physical violence is fairly limited in March Book One, but by the end of that first volume, it sort of made me have to take a hard look at the visual language I had grown up with and through in terms of depicting physical violence visually on a comic book page. And I think even across a lot of mass media, specifically through movies and TV, I'd say that most of our visual language for depicting violence in storytelling really does come from American comics. So specifically once we got to the Freedom Rides, I had to recognize that I couldn't pull back. I had to sort of unflinchingly depict violence while not only being mindful and respectful of the the people who had faced the violence, but also to be able to do so without exploiting the nature of violence as the way that I'm used to reading it in comics. So I sort of had to kind of deprogram the way I, I control body language and poses and movement. It, it may not be entirely visible, but it definitely resensitized me to physical violence. And that sort of dovetailed with becoming a, a new dad at that period. And so I became resensitized on many fronts in terms of what's going into our brains every hour of every day. I would think that would be the case. This book has had a marvelous afterlife. It is taught in schools and history classes around the country. So I assume that as you were creating it, everyone was very concerned about getting the facts right. Without a doubt. And frankly, because these are comics and because of the general legitimacy crisis that comics have always had in America, Absolutely. It, we knew that it, this would always be an uphill battle. So I'd say that this sort of goes back to that increasing level of accountability. 
in documentation and media as the movement goes on between March Book One and March Book Two. That was sort of our raising the alarm for ourselves. We had to really step up our mindfulness, recognizing, okay, this is being used as history in history classes. What are the guidelines that govern keeping history books in history class? We sort of had to give ourselves a crash course in a lot of those guidelines. Uh, And it even affected the ways in which we approach things like incidental dialogue, background dialogue. In March book one, I think I had a little bit heavier, heavier of a hand sort of throwing in incidental background dialogue as a means of visually depicting some auditory noise. I thought that that noise component was, was really important, and it was important for maintaining tension, but also for, for assessing the general tone within any environment. However, as the March trilogy increased, we recognized we had to tighten up a lot of our own guidelines. So in March book three, basically we had to carry the the internal policy that if an actual person couldn't be quoted as saying something, we could not include it even as background incidental dialogue. It, that was frustrating at times, but it was what absolutely had to be done in order to make sure that this book would have the most secure footing as possible specifically in institutional settings. What materials did you use to draw and color? I do all of my work physically on the paper, except for scanning the final pages in and sort of cleaning them up in Photoshop. Uh, A lot of that is just a product of being in my early 40s, and I graduated from high school and art school being the last class before any sort of computer education was required. So it's not that I'm intentionally a Luddite. Uh, it's just the way the cards have played out, and I don't have the time to really teach myself the skills. I've got to keep moving and keep working. So I use uh, I just use Bristol board, just kind of standard for cartoonists. I use a mechanical pencil to lightly and loosely do my pencils. All my ink is with India ink. About half of it is with a number two sable watercolor brush. The other half is with a croquill nib. And uh, then to use my grays, I take that same India ink and I just dilute three different gradients. It works like watercolor and is completely permanent once it does dry. Uh, It's a very quick, fun, you know, organic process. And I love doing washes. uh, So I just kind of fell in love with it. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it would be a lot of fun to do. When did you first begin cartooning? Well, I started drawing when I was three. That was in 1981. And I, I started reading comics at that time, too. But for some reason, it never occurred to me to actually draw comics. So in the summer of 1990, uh, my friend Mike Lyerly had been drawing for a couple of years. And it really just took him saying the words. He's like, Nate, we need to make comics together. It was like an incantation just by saying the words. I was like, <laughs> oh, that is so obvious. I can't believe I've never drawn a comic before. Uh, So that was the summer I turned 12, and I just never looked back. We both got really serious about it. And, you know, there was someone with whom to commiserate about this very strange, nerdy, deeply satisfying endeavor. And uh, within about two years, we had started self-publishing by photocopying our own comics and selling and distributing them ourselves. Well, that was my question. What was your first publication? So it was you were self-pubbing very early. Yes. This is pre-internet Arkansas. This is during the comics boom of the early 1990s. And we had one comic book shop in town called Collector's Edition. And the owner 
came from a self-publishing background, and he was gracious enough to grant us a little bit of shelf space uh, at a time when that shelf space was really at a premium. This is sort of interconnected with discovering the underground punk rock community, which is very DIY-oriented at around the same time. And so getting exposed to other young people, not only starting bands, but printing up fanzines, making their own tapes and records. And we just brought it back over to the the kind of dystopian superhero comics we were making at the time. Well, you were in a punk band for years called, is it Sophie or Sufi? It's Sufi Nun Squad. It's yet, okay, yet another yes. casualty of being too young to correctly spell certain things. And then the the name of the band is meaningless anyway, so... But you guys, you know, I, I had read you, you were in a punk band, and then I you know, looked up the punk band, and I thought, whoa, 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 wait, you toured for years. You went to Europe. You played around the country. Oh, yes. This isn't like my housemate's band, which is, you know, in somebody's basement every week. Oh, sure. But that's the thing is my band probably was like your housemate's band, except that <laughs> over time, as you get more interwoven with the other bands like your band, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm on tour now. Oh, I'm in Europe now. Oh, I just put out a record. How about that? But that's that's the joy of punk is that there are no rock stars. Every band really is just a basement band, even if you do sell 50,000 copies of a record. That's pretty good, though. Were you cartooning while you were in the band? I sure was. Uh, and so I'd say... We were most active between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s. And during that time, I went to the School of Visual Arts for cartooning. I started offset printing a self-published series and started pitching work to other publishers. However, most of my life was still structured around my band's touring schedule or recording schedule. So once, once my band became defunct, all of a sudden I realized that it was a lot easier to focus for a few years at a time on a book. So after my band sort of fizzled out in 2006, that's when I really sat down to do my first full-length graphic novel, which was Swallow Me Whole. And you were also a caregiver for a decade for adults who had developmental challenges. That's what right. What drew you to that for that long a period of time? Uh, well, it was, it was uh, very natural and pretty personal. Uh, my, my older brother, has uh, he's on the, on the autism spectrum. He was born in the early 70s, so the autism spectrum notably didn't exist at the time when I was a kid growing up with my brother. The spectrum wasn't defined until 1995. So, I don't know, for me, it was just the way my family was, and that was growing up with my brother. Uh, when I was about 19 or 20, one of his high school friends came over to visit and mentioned that he had been working with a, a company that was doing uh, performing arts and visual arts stuff for people with disabilities in my hometown. And he's like, I think that'd be a really great job for you. You should try it. And I was like, oh, I kind of didn't know that was a job. Okay. <laughs> so I started being an art teacher for folks with developmental disabilities. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, because of my life experience, this is a strength for me. And I love it. It's satisfying. You know, who knew I could work at a job that wasn't just, you know, making food and serving it? Uh, I have always had that thought in the back of my head where I'm like, well, you know, my former career is important and it's satisfying. And if I ever need to go back to that, I will have no qualms about it whatsoever. Well, I'm always curious how 
experiences bleed into each other because we don't live in, you know, okay, this is my caretaking box. This is my cartooning box. This is my band box. You know, these things always mush together. And I mean that in a positive way. Certainly. So I'm curious if you've thought about perhaps how those those experiences, that, that decade of of doing that care and that time in, in your punk band, how you can see that reflected in the work that you do now. Oh, yes. They're deeply intertwined. I, I mean, even in the book Swallow Me Whole, which is a work of fiction, it centers around teenage step-siblings with emerging symptoms of different mental disorders and not only the stigma which follow them, but the, di- the changing dynamics within uh, their, their family, their culture, their school, their friends. Uh, and so without being directly influenced by experiences I had throughout my career, it was unavoidable that the, I guess, the lens through which I had always viewed life being adjacent to folks who experienced the world differently was really at the core of that book. And the other thing, you know, sort of stepping off that cliff and having a career cartooning, nobody gets rich by cartooning, or very few people do. Oh, yeah. Very um, few. That had to be a consideration. Oh, certainly. Uh, and, you know, I was very fortunate that I had a chance a few years before I became a dad to be able to take a chance. And the time when I did decide to go full-time as a cartoonist, there was a way I could scrape by on maybe $15,000 a year. And comics is a pretty small pond. And in terms of being inside the larger world of publishing, at times it can feel really insular. So a lot of it is you keep doing the work, you keep your books in print, you're always moving forward. And after five or 10 years, you'll have enough books which remain in print, which might sell a few hundred or a few thousand copies each year. And that does add up to help you make a living. And that's precisely what happened with me. Uh, I'd say that I was a full-time cartoonist for five years before I stopped worrying every couple of months, like doing the math, running through the numbers, and seeing if I needed to look for a, a day job just in case. And so that, that's even a whole year after March Book One came out. It's a real relief to have persevered, but that worry never goes away. And that's sort of what keeps you hustling and keeps you looking for new work and thinking a year or two ahead of time. Well, after March, you did a solo work called Come Again. Can you give us just a very quick synopsis of that plot? Oh, sure. Okay, so Come Again is kind of a horror suspense relationship story. It takes place in the late 70s in the Ozarks in a sort of half-abandoned hippie village that's always thrived on openness, but it sort of explores the basic human need to to carve out a space for privacy, a space for secrecy. Uh, however, there is an actual demon which lives inside the hill underneath this village which feeds off of secrecy. Uh, so there are there are missing children, there are curses, there are terrible reckonings, there's infidelity. A lot of it just simply has to do with changing ideals. And your most recent book is Two Dead, and that is a collaboration with Van Jensen. That's right. And that's set in Little Rock in 1946, and it focuses on race. What's the story of that book? Well, oddly, both Come Again and Two Dead predate my work on March from their earliest inceptions. 
So Van uh, used to be the crime reporter for my hometown newspaper in Little Rock. And he stumbled across a bizarre chapter in Little Rock law enforcement history involving what appeared to be some kind of a murder-suicide, some kind of undiagnosed PTSD involving possible delusions of an actual demon invasion causing crime in Little Rock. Uh, So I guess in 2011, right before I became a dad, uh, Van got in touch with me and and let me know, hey, I've got this really weird, compelling story from Little Rock. I'm wondering if you'd like to draw it. So I did a few just sample illustrations so that he could pitch the story. And then I became a dad. He became a dad. And we kind of forgot about things for a bit. And then we circled back around to it. And uh, I started drawing it back while I was doing March Book 2 and March Book 3. But very quickly, I really needed to put it on the back burner. So as soon as March was done, I was more freed up to spend all of my time reckoning with... uh, with Come Again and Two Dead. And I'm, I'm glad that I waited so long with Two Dead because one of the weird things about graphic novels is that it takes two or three years to make a book. So we had to sort of reckon with the, the contemporary climate of 2018 and 2019 and sort of change our story, our art, our lettering to meet those challenges. When you spend so long making a story, it has to be a living thing. It has to be able to reckon with what's happening outside your window. Do you prefer collaborating or do you like working on your own or do you like doing both? I like doing both and they're such different processes for me that I'm pretty easily able to do them both simultaneously, though that's a very practical need. I generally do get paid more money from publishers when I'm just acting as an artist working with a writer. And I've been very lucky that everyone I've worked with as a writer uh, has been a friend and has been someone whose writing I've I've really respected. But my own stories are pretty weird and intuitive at times, and they're just not the kind they're not necessarily the kinds of books you're gonna be getting a huge paycheck from, but those are the most satisfying to me. At the same time, the the process by which I draw those two types of books really serve to inform and enrich each other. Uh, for example, like Come Again is a I started penciling it while I was drawing March, and it, you know, it's a really weird horror book. It seems to bear no similarity to March whatsoever, but by working with a finished script and such meticulous, concrete considerations for storytelling throughout the March trilogy, that need for clarity and concreteness was something I was able to take back to the drawing table for doing Come Again, and I was able to tell a much stranger, more open-ended story with more clarity and more concreteness than I had ever been able to achieve before. Uh, And then I'd go back to to do Two Dead with a writer, with a finished script, someone else who was meticulous and well-researched, and I was able to bring a lot of that weirdness back on board. So they sort of bounce off each other. Well, Nate, thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Your work is wonderful. Well, thank you so and much. And it was, it was great to talk to you about it. It was very enlightening for me. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's cartoonist Nate Powell. He's the author, with Representative John Lewis and Andrew Iden, of the National Book Award winner, the trilogy, March. Nate's most recent books are Come Again, and Two Dead, which is written with Van Jensen. 
You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do. And then leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.